Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is philanthropy professional, entrepreneur, activist, and community builder, Ashley Spivey. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. A believer in black girl magic, Ashley Spivey celebrates black talent, entrepreneurship, community advocacy, and social justice. She works professionally and personally to create just and equitable communities as a community organizer, philanthropist, and activist. Her current philanthropy professional role is as a program officer with the Kaufman Foundation. Ashley is also the co-founder of a high-quality fast food outlet, Best Burger, and the founder of the supportive community endeavor, IB Black Girl. Noting her efforts, Ashley was nominated as a 2020 Black to the Future Public Policy Institute Fellow. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In a story written about you by Leo Adam Beeger, he quotes art therapist Yasmin Tucker as saying, Ashley has an elevated energy about her. I know when I am in her circle, I can do anything. She is courageous and unapologetically herself. So that's an amazing quote. So, it really is. I forgot she said that in that article. <laughs> so, so how accurate does that feel? Do, do you see yourself in that? Is that familiar to you? Um, you know, that's hard. I think um, I would like to think that I see myself in that way, right? Um, but for me, the work I do um, and the impact that I try to make, I feel like is like my soul's work. You know, like this is what I'm called to do. This is what I'm supposed to do with my time here on this earth. Um, and my investment in um, Black folks and Black liberation um, models that. And so for people to affirm me in that way, to say those things, it it means a lot. It's really humbling and like super touching because um, I think we can be our biggest uh, critique. And of course, like imposter syndrome lives. And so um, it's beautiful to hear her describe my work and my energy and my connectedness to Black folks in that way. So the context of that quote, other, other than appearing in, in this you know, really fine article about you by Leo, um, was in the context of your work in creating and catalyzing this entity called IB Black Girl. And I'm not mm. even entirely sure how to articulate what that entity is. So, so let me mm. ask you, you know, would, would you talk about IB Black Girl? Yeah, so Ivy Black Girl um, started super organically. If I would have like dreamed what it could be, I didn't think about it then. Um, I work in predominantly white spaces um, with white dominant culture, and I'm the first and only Black person. I'm Black woman, and it's exhausting. And so at that time of Ivy Black Girl's inception, I was tired. I was frustrated and I wanted to be around other black women. I always say I'm at my best when I'm around black women. Um, And so I put this call out to my Facebook, like, hey, who wants to go brunch? Like get a, have a little kiki, have a drink. And in my mind, 10 people would have came. So like 30 RSVP for black folks, that's about 10, 10 to seven. And I was like, okay, this is going to be cute. We'll go to mantra or something and have a good brunch. And it ended up being like over a hundred women that said I want to come. And so we had a catered brunch. We had a DJ. We had some black women business owners vending at this um, get together. And it really felt like Um, what I was experiencing, other Black women were experiencing, and that there was an opportunity to do more. Now, how my brain works, I'm a community organizer, so my work is rooted in social justice, right, like Black liberation, all these things. Um, And so I'm like, okay, how can we use this momentum of Black women wanting to connect to really build on our strengths as a community to really do do what it is that we want to do? Um, And so I called on a handful of other Black women that I trust to help me think through that 
And so we grew over, it's been four years now, to really having a stronger sense of our identity and our purpose. So we are a collective. We exist um, so that Black women, fems, and girls can access and reach our full potential, um, which is super broad, right? So we're really thinking about the total well-being and the total personhood of Black women, fems, and girls. Um, our, our levers or our approaches that we're taking to actualize that are rooted in economic liberation. So we just worked to pass LB 451, which expands natural hair protection in the workplace. We partnered with Women's Fund on some other policy initiatives like childcare subsidy expansions, which right, which makes a difference for working moms or women or fems in the in the um, in the workplace to be able to afford childcare. We know that that is a barrier. Um, we are looking at philanthropy and our role in philanthropy. Um, so there's like a myth that you know, Black folks don't give, and that's not true. And so we just give in very different ways. I think the narratives around philanthropy, again, are rooted in white dominant culture. And so Jay Warren Teamer leads that book of work and is really around how do we get institutional funders to give to us, and then we decide how it's given out. And then how do we create an outlet for Black women to collectively pull our funds together to invest in our community? Because we know that collective community in that approach is inherent to our culture. Um, so we have that avenue. Um, and then we're really thinking about like leadership and not leadership of like, how do you become a leader and what does that mean? But really saying we all have influence and power. So what is it that we want to cultivate for ourselves? So we have a youth advisory committee called Black Girls Lead where they have that leadership exploration. They decide the topics, they decide what they want to um, discuss and learn and be emerged in. And we just create the guardrails in the space. So again, it's really trying to think about all of the facets of how we exist, um, the things that we need, um, and how do we show up. Our kind of biggest um, deep dive that we're into now is thinking about reproductive justice through the lens of Black maternal health. So our take action work where we are doing advocacy coalition building um, has really become, for me, the bread and butter of the organization. I think it's a place where we need to be as um, an intermediary. Like we're working at the system level. So we're trying to change systems so that it benefits everyone. And so you do that through policy, through advocacy, um, through organizing. And so, um, you know, the disparities and disproportionate outcomes for Black mothers and birthing folks are devastating in a developed country like the U.S. And Nebraska's footprint has just as many um, trends that match national or higher than national trends for Black women and birthing folks' health. And so we've said, like, this is a long-term commitment that we're working on. And so we started the first and only Black Maternal Health Statewide Coalition we are having in October, this is like a sneak peek, so you get this information first. We're having like an unconference conference um, the month of October, where we will have different sessions live and recorded that really support the birthing experience of Black folks. Um, so that's um, supporting medical co-practitioners that supporting birthing folks on like, how do I pick my birth worker? What is a doula versus a midwife? Like what doctors are of color that I want to go to that, you know, can really provide culturally appropriate and quality care. Um, we are advocating for legislation around how do we make sure the correct data is collected so that we can really tell our story from that angle, as well as our personal narratives. Um, Ivy Black Girl has just flourished in a way that I really couldn't have imagined it would have four years ago when we were getting together at the old, um, old OSBN building, you know, like having mimosas and waffles. Like it's really grown into this collective that is fighting for um, Black women, fems, and girls.
you use the word exhausting in there as part of this description of your experience as a woman and as a black woman. I want to frame my conversation with you in the context that you self-identify as a black woman. I'm self-identifying as a white man. And so I acknowledge that my, you know, my experience of, of the world is, is framed from that perspective. And it's not your job to educate me. In the spirit, though, of us just having a conversation about the lens on the world that, that you have, I wonder what were the characteristics of the experience that you've identified where you're using the word like exhausting mm -hmm. and also that idea that you are both uh, identifying as a woman but also intersecting with this identity as being black as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious about what what were yeah. your experiences and and how did these other you know self-identifying black women kind of show up in that space with you with sort of similar experiences? Yeah, I think too another thing and kind of framing to add is like I'm a cis black woman, you know, so that creates a different layer versus like trans women and their experiences, and then I think nationality, right? Like, what does it mean to be black in America is very different, you know, than some global context. And so I think all that framing makes a difference into what I experience when I use the word exhausting. Um, for me, it was really around, um, you go into these places, right, where you've never been represented, your, your lived experience, your identities are not present. And when you come into these spaces, I bring all of that. I bring up how I grew up. I bring up you know, my college experience or experiences of my mom and, you know, so on and so forth. And so especially working in the social sector. So I worked in nonprofit um, and then moved to philanthropy, which is still the social sector, but very different than like the day to day grind of working with clients or um, folks. And um, a lot of those identities I shared with clients, like a lot of the issues when you're in or when I'm in the philanthropic space are opportunities or issues that I directly experienced as that professional then and previously. And so you really feel this tension um, and you feel the tension of white dominant culture and how that shows up. So for example, like perfectionism, you know, to be the only person representing or being there with your identities, um, there's this unwritten rule of what does it mean to make a mistake or not? And if you're given grace, or, you know, the stereotypes that exist around Black women in this space. I'm very direct. I have very clear vision. Well, then that means I'm hard to work with and not a team player, you know? So, or if I call out issues of inequity and I lead with the racial equity and, and uh, liberation lens, then I'm always bringing up the race card, right? Like I get tagged as, oh God, here comes the race police. And so it's like all of these different things. And then just like regular social things of like people touching my hair or at work, everyone is talking about a TV show with all white characters that does not relate to me that I don't even watch and are having such a good time. And I'm cut out of that conversation because who I am socially does not match who they are socially. And so it's like lots of different facets is very nuanced, um, but it just gets, it gets tiring. It gets tiring to have to read your emails over and over to make sure, okay, did I think about this? How does this sound? Did I write this the right way? Right. And so, um, it became very exhausting. And I can say that Ivy Black Girl and even um, Young Black and Influential that I started was a response to what was happening to us. And I have an amazing friend. Her name is Dr. Monique Liston. She runs Ubuntu Research and Evaluation, well, founded and runs Ubuntu. Um, they are a research and eval firm out of Milwaukee. And they're actually doing our strategy development and theory of change for us at Ivy Black Girl. And we connected. Like, she a Leo, like me. She's brilliant, like smart, beautiful, all the things. And so through our strategy development, she has really pushed me to say, what is our liberation rooted in? And it cannot be rooted in the trauma that happens to us. And I think so often we are in response mode and survival mode. And she said that to us in our strategy session. She said at this, at, at this keynote that I watched her in and I was like, yes, 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 yes. Like, how am I defining our liberation? Is it because of the response of what um, you know, this white dominant culture and white supremacy culture has done? Or is it because this is what I have imagined and inspired for Black women, films, and girls? And that's my, you know, compass for it no matter what. And so she's really made me um, realign that for myself. And I think that's the 
most important thing when I think about my experience or experience of others is that we're always approximate to our relationship to other people as Black women and femmes. Um, and I really want us to be unapologetic about this is what we've named for ourselves. It's not rooted in trauma. It's what we have aspired for ourselves. And this is what we're going to do regardless. mentioned Young Black and Influential too as another organization that you were a catalyst for. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that too, what, what that organization is and, and yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's goals are. It was an award that I actually won this award now, which is a little ironic, but the award event um, is a very prominent award event in Omaha. And they were like boasting about their most diverse class. And I'm like, well, this is some BS because I know the Black population is this. And again, I'm coming from the frame of Black liberation and like, you have no one. Like, I know all these amazing people. Like, if you needed some names, I could provide these names. And I was like, kind of ranting on Facebook. Um, but I have a friend, Dale Gines, that was like, Ashley, if you don't like cut it and just start your own awards, like quit complaining. Like, like those are his real words to me. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You gonna help me? And he was like, sure. And so we put together this awards event this space that said redefining leadership like people use that word and again I think it's rooted in white supremacy like there's unwritten norms of who's a leader or not who gets to pick who's a leader and with YBI we say like everyone has influence and that's what the words we use are our influencers and so each year now for five years we have um, awarded about 12 people um, in different categories so like around activism entrepreneurship and innovation like culture and arts um, we have a youth category, 20s, 30s, and 40s. And YBI is really to say, we see you, we affirm you, and like, how can we come together collectively to continue to do this work? To have, you know, five years of doing this, like, I forget <laughs> how long it's been and how many folks, um, but it's really beautiful. We also offer a board training program. And so one of the things that we know about power in um, specifically Nebraska for that context is that boards provide formalized power outlets and opportunities. And so we wrote some curriculum where we are helping Black folks understand the technical skill of getting on a board, but then also like how do they navigate this like unwritten social norms around being Black in these spaces if, if Black folks have never existed or worked in. And then we also have a training that we do for the nonprofits that say, if you want Black folks to get on your boards, you got to fix your culture and make it super inclusive. Um, and so we offer that in partnership with NAM, which has gone really well. Um, so we have that. And then lastly, we launched um, and are powering this site called Connect Black Omaha. Connect Black Omaha is really a space for like, no matter your affiliation, because Omaha is like about who you know and what you're a part of. Like if you're a sorority, fraternity, your church home, where you work, where you grew up, you know, those kinds of things. So sometimes it's hard to get in touch. Um, sometimes it's hard to reconnect if, if you've even been here. And so we really wanted a space that said, no matter your affiliation, like you can come here and find information about Black culture, events that are intentional to center us activities or places to spend your money, um, Black-owned businesses. And so we have a website, we have our social media, and that's really what Connect Black Omaha does, is it helps to connect people that are Black in Omaha around what's happening and ways to get engaged. And so um, we're really excited about what that looks like. Um, the influencers really help to run and manage it, which is great. Um, as a community organizer, like that's what I really want for the folks that have been awarded or have been a part to like take it over and do it what they want with it. So it's been, again, like a beautiful transition to see how this is continuing to grow and supporting Black folks here. Time goes by and yet I wonder, are you and me still the same? Are you still loving the game? I know I don't. You cast your spell and I went under. I know the laughter and the pain Will I ever love again?
All this effort that you put into community building makes me want to ask you about the Black to the Future Public Policy Institute. And, and you were nominated and accepted as a fellow there in 2020, but I don't know much about the program itself. So yeah. what, what did it take to apply and to be recognized? And, and what is the work that you're doing as a fellow of that institute? Yeah, so it was a year fellowship. So it's over now. Um, it started and ended in 2020 during the thick of the pandemic. Um, which was tough. It was virtual, but um, I think it was really necessary. You know, the pandemic at the crux of more heightened awareness around racial injustice, I think is super opportunistic where people, they have to pay attention more than they were forced to before, right? So how can we use this prime window of some attention given to these issues to really try to create change? This fellowship was really looking at how do you use policy as a lever um, to create Black liberation or to move opportunities or issues in Black communities. And so um, I applied. It was a national fellowship. Me and my good sis, Dominique Morgan, got in, which was great to be able to do that with her. Um, and I think there were maybe 13 other folks in the cohort. Um, we were the inaugural class. And we really spent time just really learning in a crash course around policy and using policy as a lever for change. Um, and I think it absolutely helped me tremendously. Like, I thought I knew policy. This gave me different ways to think about policy, to think about strategy, to think about the impacts of, like, policy doesn't sit on the shelf. So how do you truly operationalize and see it come to fruition in community? And I think it directly helped me overcome a veto from the governor to pass LB 451. I think it's given me clarity on how I'm approaching our Black maternal health advocacy with the bills that are currently um, in the unicameral. I, th I think it absolutely helped to kind of mold that skill set for me to say, how does that fit into like this larger work that you're doing? And how does that lever of policy, because I don't believe policy is the end all be all, but how does that lever truly add to your toolkit to advance some work? And so um, it was a great experience. Um, I learned a ton. So let me connect then into your long professional career working in the field of nonprofits and that whole landscape of philanthropy, and most recently as a program officer with the Kaufman Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what does the Kaufman Foundation do and what's your role? Yeah, absolutely. So I must say that this interview does not represent the views of Kaufman. It is not an official Kaufman interview, um, but we'll absolutely be able to talk to how that work relates to my soul's work. And so um, Kaufman is a private foundation based out of Kansas City. And the space in which I work in is, is around um, entrepreneurship. So thinking about inclusive prosperity and how does entrepreneurship provide a lever to that? And so I have a four-state region, which Nebraska is a part of that, where I really get the opportunity to think about creating environments that allow for entrepreneurship, especially those that are underrepresented in those ecosystems like Black folks, Latinx folks, Indigenous people, women, to really be represented and flourish. And so, you know, through Ivy Black Girl, we have a space where we are focused on Black women founders. Um, we are the fastest growing segment in the nation for entrepreneurship but again, are not getting capital access at the same rate as our white peers, um, are not getting investment from venture capital, where there's not culturally appropriate support services or accelerators or incubators for us. And so being able to bring that experience of how I work with Black women founders absolutely relates to my program officer role. And then just being a business owner myself. So like I have my consulting firm. I'm a builder. You know, I've started these community initiatives. My partner and I have a restaurant. And so um, just that kind of entrepreneur um, spirit and experiences, I can say, like, as we think about our investment through the foundation, like, how does that actually ripple down into the people that we most want to support? It's been great to be able to learn and to do that kind of work there.
there's maybe this sense that community building has to be about throwing money at something, that it has to be about um, you know people on the streets, or it has to be about nonprofits. But I really appreciate you talking about um, the vibrancy that comes into communities when people feel actively vested with their economic power and security. Mm-hmm. You are an entrepreneur, and you've mentioned that you have this restaurant with your partner, Universal. Tell us more about Best Burger. Um, how did that originate yeah. as a concept and come to fruition? Yeah, so I would say I'm a serial entrepreneur. Like I like to build a lot of things, and um, and Universal is super creative. So like he's my life partner and like my business partner. Like we do a ton of things together. And um, he used to work in manufacturing, and we know that there's always kind of a level or a cap to your success, especially as Black folks in unions. And in the trades, you're more apt to getting hurt. And so it was kind of a crux of like, I don't know if there's a career for me in this space anymore. What would that look like? And his first love was food. He went to school to do culinary work. And so we were talking about it. And he likes like burgers and different things. And he's like very like a connected kind of home person. And so he wanted to create like an experience where you can get like a home cooked meal. It's fast, it's affordable. And we were talking about burgers on the North side. Like, where do you go to get a burger? It's like a true burger joint. And I was like, well, let's just start a restaurant. And it seemed very daunting, right? Like, I think um, it's harder for Black folks, especially to take risk on ourselves and invest in our dreams. And I was like, we work every day for everyone else. Like, let's do this for us and our family. You know, like we have employees, like our kids get to see us owning things. And, you know, like I think that there's inherent value, not just having this restaurant, but just the ripples of intention that it um, has within our family and in our larger community. So we started getting our stuff together and we were working on this a year before the pandemic. So again, a lot of attention. We were going doing our projections, like our branding, our value proposition, like all the things. And then we were slated to open April, 2020. We found a cute little spot in Florence, like, you know, February, I think end of February is where everything shut down. And we're like, well, what do we do? We've invested so much. Like, do we still open or not? So we decided to still open. We didn't let folks in. So we were only take out curbside or delivery. And we kind of, it felt like a pilot year, you know, like there was so much uncertainty, so much change, like running a business is hard in itself, running a restaurant adds another layer, but to do it in a global, you know, pandemic where our friends are sick, we've lost friends, you know, during this time, family members, like it was tough, um, but we survived. We learned a lot. We were able to be nimble. And so we said, okay, this year when we're quasi have a handle on COVID, we are really going to be able to really start to flourish. And so we moved to a new location um, on 30th and Lake. It's at the dining room. So it's a dining hall with other, a couple of other black owned businesses. Um, And it's great. We have great equipment. It has a beautiful patio and dining room where folks can spread out. We can still do takeout. Um, the, the structure of the building allows for us to keep our staff safe. So even if there is something else outside of COVID-19, that we can really be proactive in how do we protect ourselves and our business. Um, and we we are able to like do it, you know, like to say that we've survived through like the the kind of epicenter of the, the pandemic. And now that we're kind of slowly moving away from that, that we have a strong plan and we have our customer base um, is great. We're family owned and operated. So like my sister is the manager, which is amazing. Our cousins work there. Like some of my best friend's kids are our employees. I mean, like it's truly familial. It's just, it has been a great experience. I can't say entrepreneurship is not for the week. So you have to have tough skin. You have to figure out how to operate when you're tired or, you know, to figure through really hard things. Um, and, and like, right, like this is my life partner and business partner. So how can I make sure that we have time for just us to be a couple and be in love and not always business, which can be difficult because my mind is always thinking about business where he's like, nope, this is my protected time. I don't want to talk about it. I'm disconnecting and I have a hard time doing that. 
but it's been a beautiful experience. And so um, we are going to be opening a second location soon. And so we'll have a big announcement. So for folks that are on social media, subscribe to our newsletter from our website. Um, follow us on um, Instagram or Facebook, um, Best Burger Omaha. And then you'll you'll get to see that announcement firsthand of what we're going to do next. How do you think about being a leader? You know, what what is leadership? And I asked that because earlier you also mentioned um, that that can come framed and loaded with so many dynamics that are characterized in a male and a, and a cisgender and a white landscape. And you, you've refused to accept that particular framing of it. You clearly manifest this vast amount of energy and passion and commitment, and you just, you just start and you get things done. So, so how do you think about leadership and what it is? I don't even know. Like sometimes I'm always like, how did I even get here? Or what does this look like? I can say that I've had people that have invested in me, um, which makes a difference. Like people have believed in my leadership style or the way in which I want to lead or my vision for things, you know, and made sure that I had the tools that I needed to have or open doors for me that would have otherwise not been open. And, And I think it's, you know, walking in your purpose and what you're supposed to do. And so I think um, really channeling like the spirit and energy of my mom, she has transitioned of like, how does she operate in this world? What does she manifest and create for me? And how do I stay um, aligned to that in my work? And like, how do I use that as my guidepost when I feel like, you know, things are super hard or I don't know which way to go or if I'm not trusting myself or am I making the right decisions? So I don't know. I think it's, it's a mix of things, but I think we deserve, especially Black folks, to like be aspirational, to take chances and fail and learn and reinvent and be innovative and be creative. Like we deserve all of those things. And I feel like that's my intention in these spaces is to create those opportunities if they don't exist or help leverage them if they do. Like that's how I try to set up my work and, and how I show up. So I hope that that's, is, you know, that's what's happening. But I don't know if I have like a... A clear thought on that. You know, I know for sure, like leaders can't dictate and I have a strong personality and a strong vision, but it's like thinking about, you know, how can I create influence and how do I change systems and how am I always critically reflecting on myself and how I show up? Because I don't want to be stagnant in my learning or stagnant in how I show up. Because I think that is a downfall of certain folks that feel like they're leading communities or especially the kind of work that I'm doing, like I've done it. I know it. I'm not open to learning. I feel like we're lifelong learners in that way. I definitely think that young people absolutely can lead. And so I've been thinking a lot about how do I invest in younger folks who, you know, don't get the opportunity to like 25 or their first, you know, like that's when we start investing in people and how they show up. But I'm like, well, we should start at 13 and 10 because these kids are brilliant. Um, I'm always trying to think about that and be thoughtful about how it shows up. I'm sure that I do not do it right all the time. Um, But I think that's important to me as a leader is to be able to critically reflect on myself and like hold myself accountable to those values that I say guide and align me.
I'm curious about the experiences you had that shaped you when you were young. So would you share a little bit about what was your childhood like? It was amazing. So I grew up with my mom and my grandparents um, and like very communal, like my godfather, my cousin, who's my godmom. My grandma still lives in the same house that she raised my mom in and that, you know, I lived in for a while. Um, And I think it's interesting because I had an amazing childhood. Like my mom was my best friend. She is my best friend. We did everything together. She put me in so many different opportunities from like ice skating to gymnastics. She's the reason why I went to a black college to play volleyball. Like why I went to Spain to study abroad. Like she's always pushed me and always provided. I think as an adult reflecting on my childhood, right? Like happiness is is contextual. And I think this gets into the framing of like white supremacy and dominant culture. Um, Because when I started at Heartland Family Service, most nonprofits now are looking at ACEs versus childhood experiences and like why folks maybe are struggling with addiction or other behavioral issues, maybe mental health, and they are looking at the childhood trauma and what, what does that look like? So to oversimplify, like you score these certain criteria areas and that gives you your ACEs number, the higher the number, the more traumatic your childhood is. And they say like the more, you know, issues, quote unquote, you may have. And I had a really high ACE. Like for instance, my dad was incarcerated most of my life. Um, And so like that gives you a certain score and like in these different things, um, we lived in public housing for a little bit, but I didn't have like this horrible childhood. And I remember when I started at Heartland, I had a conversation with um, John, who was still my mentor and friend and family. I love him. And we had this conversation around, like, again, perception and who's deemed to be right or wrong. Because when I sat in this orientation and heard this, I was devastated. I was devastated that these folks who don't know me, who don't know my mom, who don't know my family, were saying to me that I had all these things wrong with me and that my experiences were wrong. When in actuality, I felt like I had an amazing childhood. I learned from those experiences and it shaped me to be the professional that was in that space. It shaped me, you know, to be the community leader that was in that space. And so we had just a really honest conversation around language and how this these frameworks are conveyed and the impact that it has on people. And I think that's really what my childhood, um, you know, molded me or, you know, curated me to, to, to be in these spaces of like, what we deem to be right or wrong or good or bad is super contextual and is really binary. And we have to be, um, we have to like break down those categories. And I mean, like I said, I had a beautiful childhood that I think prepared me to do this kind of work. Another example, I went to um, a private school here, um, a very kind of elite private school. I went on scholarship and I remember being like the only like one of two like black Americans. Like there was lots of other nationalities that represented, but like black Americans, there weren't a lot of us. And again, like I'm not rich, right? Like I'm on scholarship to come there. And my friends were like taking trips to Switzerland on the weekend. My apartment could fit in my friend's bedroom. They had their own bathrooms. They had credit cards, like things like that very different worlds. And I remember the experiences that I could not articulate then, but it makes you pause. It makes you realize you're different. Like the term people using wigger. And what does that mean? Of That's a white N-word, right? And how folks were using it. But I didn't have any concept of that because that's not the community I grew up in. This new environment introduced me to that. Or my teachers at that school saying I didn't talk Black enough. What does that even mean? You know, and being really upset but not able to pinpoint it. They did not celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. They did not have it off. They didn't do Black History Month. And so my mom and I did a a bulletin board presentation and we did something like at the um, like student meetings that we had because it was private school. So we had like chapel and all group meetings. Um, And we did some presentations and she really actively advocated for me, for Black folks and really to change their policy. But I didn't understand that at that time. 
right? Like I'm just navigating this and it's like being filed away. So then as an adult, I can reflect and say, oh, well, here's how these dots tie and this is how it looks. And so I think I've had a lot of those experiences where you're not sure as a kid, right? It starts to remove your innocence and condition you to the world in which you live in. Um, But I had a beautiful childhood that I think allowed for me to now at this point, really say, this is what I want for myself. And this is what I want for my community. Um, And that's really, you know, coming from strong Black women, my grandmother, my mother, my my granny, my great grandma, you know, like these are the women that help to create those environments. And then even seeing what mass incarceration does to communities, what it did to our family with my father being incarcerated. He has also now transitioned. Um, You know, it it plants those seeds in it. And I think it does shape you and how you view the world. So I really appreciate you painting that picture of these experiences and forces that sort of shaped your outlook on life and shaped who you are today. Uh, You also mentioned traveling or spending some time studying in Spain too. And I wonder how much being in a different country, in a different culture as well, that is not sort of entrapped by the history that is typical for America. I wonder how, too, you look back on that experience and and see that as part of what shaped you. Oh, my gosh. I learned so much. So I went to Spain by happenstance. So I played volleyball at Jackson State University. And one of my teammates um, at this time, I was done playing. Um, I was like my fifth year at the school and I graduated in December. So one of my teammates was like super well-traveled, like out of the country well-traveled. And she was like, I'm going to study. This is like her third abroad trip. She was like, I'm going to study abroad. You should come to Spain. And I'm like, I have never even thought about that. Like, what do you mean? So I told my mom about it. She was like, you should go. You're not doing anything else. You know, like, go. We'll make it work. It'll be a good experience. I'm like, all right. So I go. It is devastating. When I first get there, in my mind, it was like America. Like, I have never been out of the country. And so, like, the public transit, I was like, how am I going to get around? Everywhere that we went was public transit. We were not in a touristy town. So we were forced to speak Spanish. We went to school to learn Spanish. I was in an emergent language school. And so it was just like all of these changes. I felt like all of my safeguards of what I knew to be true were removed. You know, my day-to-day routines were totally disrupted. So I remember sitting at the cafe, calling my mom because the house did not have internet. I'm like, what is this? Calling her on Skype, like crying and bawling and just wanting to sit there for hours. And she was like, girl, you're not about to waste my money. We're going to have a good time. We're going to figure it out. And I was there for about like three and a half months. So I feel like the first half was like really adjusting. And then the second half was like flourishing and I loved it. And I wish I would have stayed longer if I could. You know, I learned the language. And at that time, when I came back, I was like intermediate in terms of my proficiency. And so I actually had a bilingual job when I came back in Texas. Um, But then when I moved to Nebraska 10 years ago, when I moved back to Nebraska, I didn't use it and I now I've lost it. But 
you know, I learned this language. I learned the culture. So my uh, second mom that I stayed with, my first family was a hot mess. And so I changed families and I lived with the woman who used to be a nun. And she was Colombian and Spanish. And she taught me about the Spanish Inquisition from the lens of being in the religion. And what does that mean to be, you know, her father was from Spain. You know, I learned from the origins around the Ku Klux Klan and how that had ties to the Spanish Inquisition and how folks operated um, that travesty. Like I I went to uh, Africa, so I got to go to Morocco and be in that space. And I got to see, you know, different folks that identified as African because that's like super broad and big. Like, what does it mean to be Moroccan and how do people talk about that versus like the Sudanese folks that I saw and difference in class and how that operated. Like, like it just was so amazing. Um, It really made me question our education system, what we learn here in America. I think we have a very particular view that does not encompass the true maybe view of how the world sees us or world history. I I saw the difference in work ethic. And so like, for instance, kids, you know, when you're graduating, you get a holiday, you get to travel and explore and then decide and go into your career. You get that brain break to really say like, who do I want to be? Because you're still so young and being developed where we're very rigid here. You do this, you do this, you do this, and you don't get that opportunity even our work days and our schedules. I mean, it was so much that was so different. I ate fresh fruit and um, meat every day. We went to the market to go pick it up and cook. I mean, like it was so different. I remember when I came back. So my school was in Jackson, Mississippi. So I came back and like, I was like, I'm still gonna walk everywhere. Like I've been walking for three months. Like I need to keep that up. I remember I was walking and someone thought that I was a sex worker um, because I was walking. I'm like, People just can't walk in this, you know, like in this environment, like it just was so different. So it was like I was transported to a different world that I loved and I appreciated and transported back. I saw a lot of things with American culture that I wanted to change. Um, And it really made me, again, think about how do I show up and not be so selfish? Like I had a very limited view of like American culture. This is what this looks like. Um, but like globally, what does it mean to be a black person? Globally, what does it mean to have luxury and how we talk about luxury and the things that we can consume? You know, um, so it's just it really challenged a lot of my ideologies. And I never had that. I feel like if I would have stayed in the U.S., I never would have been challenged around um, American culture and just my personal ideologies that I have adopted into the world. And it was beautiful. So you've mentioned a lot of women in your life that have meant a lot to you. This is a, another quote from Leo Adam Bega's article from you this time. And you say, I really do feel black women are the moral compass of society and at the helm of every major social movement. How do you feel about your place in that observation? And how do you feel about um, the future of the community work you're doing? You know, I have um, mixed emotions. I do think and truly believe Black women are the moral compass. And when you look at the number of Black women that are stepping into um, corporate spaces to address inequities, community spaces, politics, right? Like we are, we have um, and are at the helm of these social movements um, of momentum in general. I think we need to be there, but a lot of times the advancement is at the consequence of us. It's at the consequence of our mental health, of our physical health, of our trajectory and what we want to do. And so um, I think it's a it's a, a place of tension for me because I do believe in our leadership, our vision, our capabilities, how we can transform and move and do things. But I, I always feels it feels like it can destroy us and it does destroy us. And so what does it mean to have power and choice? I'm not going to do that and I'm not going to fix it. It needs to be fixed, but it ain't going to be me, you know, like not today. How do we prioritize and center ourselves? And I don't think, you know, as black women, we get that luxury. If we are a mother or in that kind of um, caregiver role, we don't get that luxury. You know, we have to prioritize everyone else. Um, So I think it's a lot of things that we hold. And my hope is that I start to better role model some sort of balance or some, you know, sort of like, yes, we can do this and no, you know, like, what does that look like to say both is my hope. And that's how I see myself fitting in. You know, I do do a lot and I get a lot of people that say like, oh my gosh, you do so much. You, you know, I need to do more or whatever. And I'm like, no, don't do it. 
Like some of the things that I do are not great practice and don't get into that spiral. Um, but some things work for me, you know, like that's, you know, so it, it's figuring out how can I demonstrate to other folks that want to get in the kind of work or that are in the kind of work or that are my colleagues, right? Like this is what it looks like to continue to provide our vision and leadership in these spaces and also prioritize our well-being and our family's well-being simultaneously, which I have not mastered. When I do, I'm going to like sell the secret and then like buy an island and everyone can move so we can have like the perfect society. My guest today has been philanthropy professional, entrepreneur, activist, and community builder, Ashley Spivey. Ashley, I really, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see your face. You know, it's been lots of time has passed with the pandemic to not like be in space with people. So I've enjoyed catching up and thank you for being able to like lift up my story and allow me to share on your platform. We're recording this sort of mid-morning. Early morning. <laughs> this is technically still early. <laughs> but because you're my friend, I said, let me just try to get up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> the end of this week's show you can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow the music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey I'm your host Stuart Chittenden and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture community and more Thank you.